Good morning, everyone. I'm going to give fair warning. If you're under the age of 25, you might want not want to listen to the first minute of this sermon. According to the Stanford Children's Hospital website, a person's brain doesn't fully develop until the age of 25. What that means is as adults, when you make decisions, you tend to use more of your prefrontal cortex, whereas if you're under the age of 25, you tend to make them using your amygdala, which means one of the things that you considered less is the long-term impact of some of the decisions that are made. Now, I'm not a scientist for a very specific reason. That's my lack of interest in anything to do with scientific research, but I will share my own experience with this. I was in either the ninth or the 10th grade. Uh, I think it must have been a Saturday. There were no adults around. There were three or four uh, of us teenage guys, which is always a great combination for being by themselves making independent decisions. And we decided to set up the high jump mat on, on its side end, and then we would run and we would jump on the high jump mat, and then it would slide across the, the floor. After doing that for about 10 or 15 minutes, one of my friends suggested it would be really cool if we put the high jump mat up on the stage, which was four feet up off of the ground. And so you have this four foot high stage and then you have this six foot high high jump mat on top of it. And I remember thinking, this probably won't turn out well. But seeing as my brain apparently had not been fully developed, I decided I would go along with everyone. And so we backed up there and we ran and, and as sometimes happens with me, when I get a little, you know, adrenaline going, I might be a little too aggressive. And so I jumped, and about mid-height is where I hit that high jump mat, flipped me over, and I went from 11 feet down, smashing right onto the ground. Uh, after several embarrassing retellings of what happened and a few stitches, I was fine. But it was a reminder of the importance of thinking about the long-term consequences and the outcomes of the decisions that we make. Not only is that a sign of maturity in life, it's a sign of maturity in your spiritual life. The ability to look ahead and the ability to know what are the long-term consequences and impact of these decisions, and in light of what you know is going to happen spiritually in the future, to make appropriate decisions. See, Christianity is a, fundamentally, it is a linear faith. And what that means, and we recognize, is that that means for Christianity, we realize that all of human history is going somewhere. It is moving in a very specific direction. It is going towards what we're going to call an ultimate end. Life is not cyclical, where, where, where you, you, you become one person and then later you're reincarnated into another life. It doesn't go in circles. It goes in a very specific direction towards a very intentional end. And what we want to do this morning is we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 63 through Isaiah 66, and we're going to be just helping to understand what uh, Isaiah tells us about this ultimate end. And hopefully we'll realize if we have a good picture of the long-term ending, that will help us to make wise choices in the decisions that we make for ourselves today. So we're going to begin reading in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 19. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in, that I, in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. 
the God who created the heavens and the earth, speaks of a time when he is going to make all things new. And at that moment when he makes all things new, the very things that we know, our current existence, is going to, in that moment, become the former things. And these former things, things that we're accustomed to, things that we're used to, they will be no longer experienced and no longer remembered. And so what Isaiah will do for us is he will share what some of those things that will be no more when God fulfills his ultimate ending. And the first thing he says, no more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. I think it's important to realize there are two ways that people will stop crying. One is because they're commanded to by a mother or a father says, quit your crying. I mean, sometimes you stop crying because somebody has commanded you to, or the other reason you stop crying is the reason that provoked the crying is taken away. You say there's no longer any reason to cry. And so which of these two things is it? Isaiah is going to explain that it's not just the crying that will cease, but it's the very purposes or reasons that crying began. So in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 20, Isaiah writes, No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but only a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred will be considered a youth, and the one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. I suspect if you went around and you asked people, what were some of the most painful moments of your life? You would probably hear a lot about death. Because death we find to be a very uh, a thing that produces in us this weeping, this, this crying. When I think about some of the hardest ministry experiences, I, I, I think of a, a two-week period where I did two funerals for babies. Uh, the first of which was a 18-year-old single mom whose baby lived just a few days, and we're there, and I'm officiating the funeral, and the family is there, and they've put the baby's casket in the ground, and it, it just looks like an oversized shoebox. And as they start putting the dirt on that casket, she jumps into the hole, and she is clawing away, trying to get back into the casket. We weep when infants die. It was about two weeks later, I did another funeral for a baby that was just a couple of weeks old. The baby's name was Clive. And all throughout the service, the mother would just randomly yell out, Clivey, why you trick me? And what she was saying is, why was I given this child and given the joy and the hope and the optimism, and then just like that, that child's life is taken away and ripped away. Why do you deceive me? Why do you trick me? Wouldn't it be wonderful that if there was a day that we no longer had to weep, because the things that caused the pain would be no more. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. There is a day that those things that cause the hardship, the things that cause the pain, the things that cause the heartache, they will no longer be here. And because of that, there is no longer any reason for weeping, and there is no longer any reason for mourning. Isaiah then goes on to describe this ultimate ending by saying these words in Isaiah 65, 21 and following. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the end of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. We live in a world where evil is at work. 
Evil is at work in and through the evil one. Evil is at work in and through the, 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 all of the things that we see happening in the world outside. And evil is at work in human hearts. And because evil is at work, there are certain things that we do and certain things that happen that just don't work out like they're supposed to work out. Have you ever been in a business venture with someone who they ended up cheating you or defrauding you? And how does that make you feel? Have you ever done an honest day's labor and somebody didn't pay you at the end of it? Have you ever been nice to someone and kind to someone and all they do is disrespect you? And all they do is say all sorts of nasty things. That's what happens in the world that we live in. But Isaiah, as he's helping us paint a picture of what God is going to bring, is saying that the very things that we do, it's all going to work out how it should. And we teach our kids, well, life's not fair. And what Isaiah is saying is there will come a time when life will be fair. When the things that we do, they will be blessed by God. Of course, this time can only come when, using Paul's words, God will be all in all. Paul's final picture is that the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its foods shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain. See, for God to accomplish this ultimate end, anything that is a threat or a challenge to God accomplishing that end must be dealt with in one way or another. And in the context of Isaiah chapter 63 through 66, that is accomplished through judgment. So I want us to read from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 and 6. And I'm going to set up the scene that we're supposed to imagine here. There are these, these watchmen who are there on the city gates, and they're watching over the city. And they look out on the horizon, and they see someone coming. And so they say uh, to that person coming, they say, Who is this who comes from Edom, from uh, Basra, in garments stained crimson? Who is this so uh, splendidly robed, marching in his great might? And the one who is approaching, he then responds in these words, saying, It is I, announcing vindication, mighty to save. Now, depending on your translation, it might say vindication or righteousness. It's this recognition that he is going to make things right. And one of the means and ways by which he is going to make things right is by vindication. So then these watchmen, they cry out again. It says, why are your robes red and your garments like those who tread the winepress? And then the man himself who was walking, he responds and he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampling them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year for my redeeming work had come. I looked, and there was no helper. I stared, but there was no one to sustain me. So my own arm brought me victory, and my wrath sustained me. I trampled down people in my anger. I crushed them in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood upon the earth. How do you feel? about this description of vindication and of righteousness. There's a recent survey done of why people who attend church go to church. Fourth most common answer, 66% of people said this, they go to church to be comforted in times of trouble or sorrow. 
So maybe there's a part of me that thinks we should just skip Isaiah 63. Because when you read it, it doesn't seem too encouraging. And it doesn't seem very comforting. In fact, you're probably repulsed a little bit about this notion of a man who comes back and they say, hey, have you been out treading the grapes? He says, no, I've been treading people's lives. And what is on me is not the juice of grapes, but it is the blood of those whom I have brought the vindication of God. And maybe if we had to vote, we would all just say, let's skip this and let's just move on to something a little bit happier to talk about. And maybe if I was a good preacher and I knew any better, I would just skip it too. And we'd all then be happy. But yet Isaiah writes these words, and he writes these words for us to hear God's coming judgment. I think our response to this passage is even more confusing. We have this, we have this horrendous, terrible verses, and then here's the very next verse. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us in the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And we say, man, are we talking about the same thing between verse 6 and verse 7. And in fact, if you read Isaiah 63, God will bring righteousness. That righteousness may come in the form of judgment, and that righteousness may come in the form of promises. So I want to know, how are we to understand these words of judgment? What are we to do with them? How are we to process this difference? And so to answer that, I'm going to take a little bit of a detour, and hopefully we'll tie all the loose ends here in a minute. There's a, uh, a sociologist, he studies organizational behaviors named Will Phelps. And so what Will Phelps does is he gets a group of four people together and he has them work on projects. And Phelps has a guy who works with him, but nobody knows he works with him, whose name is Nick. And Nick is the quintessential bad apple. And so the group works together for a little bit. He subs someone out, and then Nick is a part of the group. And Nick's going to play one of three roles at different times. He's told sometimes he's the jerk, sometimes he's the slacker, and sometimes he's the downer. And if you've ever worked with any of those people, you know exactly what they're like. And he says, when they sub out four people who are working together and you put this other person in, Phelps says that the productivity of a group drops between 30 to 40% before that person got in there. Bad apples can infect entire groups of people. And so what do you do? How do you approach and deal with a bad apple? Well, in his book, Necessary Endings, Henry Cloud says, well, you gotta, you gotta decide what kind of a person this is. What kind of a bad apple it is. He says, the one option is this person could be a fool. And a fool is someone who rejects and explains away and resists any sort of instruction. They just won't take it. And Henry Cloud says, you, you, you can't talk to a fool. There's two resources and tools you have for a fool. That is limits and consequences. Limits and consequences says you can do this and you cannot do that. And if you do what you cannot do, here is going to be the consequence. But we're not talking about this anymore. You just need to know here's what's going to happen. Cloud says there's another type of bad apple, and that type of bad apple is just an evil person. There are some people in this world who just like to delight in other people's suffering. And they will do whatever they can do to make you hurt. And Henry Cloud says the only response to a person like that is offense. 
you got to protect yourself and you have to protect those you love from evil people. So if you think about in a, in a church context or a family context or in an organizational context, we all know that there are bad apples. And, and that if you just ignore bad apples, it begins to corrupt the entire group. So there's some people in the world we know that will refuse to change no matter what you do. If you haven't learned that already in life, that's a pretty important lesson to learn in life. There are some people who will refuse to change no matter what you do. And there are some people who the damage they cause is because you have left unaddressed what they are doing in a group context. And I think that framework then gives us a framework to understand this concept of judgment in God's work and in God's ultimate future because there are certain people who will continue to reject God who will continue to turn their back on God and their very presence would make it impossible to create the kind of place when those who build houses get to inhabit it because evil people will want to destroy those things. So here's a few things I want you to keep in mind. This is helpful for reading Isaiah, but helpful for reading any Old Testament passages about judgment. And the first is this. Judgment passages serve as an early warning system. I mean, we read about judgment a lot. Isaiah uh, 63 through 66 has it. But, but what is God telling people? And what is God communicating when he talks about this coming day of judgment? Well, it functions very much like if in World War II in London, England, whenever they knew that the German bombers would come, they would have the air raid sirens. And the function of the air raid sirens were to communicate a message similar to this. We want you to live. And we believe your chance of living will be increased if you go and you hide out in a bunker. And so the purpose of this message is to say, we care about you, get to a safe place. In a very similar way, the judgment passages are all given in advance with the desire that nobody would be subjected to that day of vengeance. I mean, isn't that exactly what happens in the book of Jonah? God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them judgment is coming. And Jonah says what? I don't want to do it, because I kind of hope they're sleeping when the bombers come, and they all get blown to bits. That's what I'd actually like to have happen, and God can be persuasive. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh, and Jonah preaches to Nineveh, and guess what happens? For Jonah, he doesn't get what he wants, but God gets what he wants, which is what? The people repented. The messages of judgment are not to say, God saying, I hope this happens. Wouldn't it be great if? It's saying, I want you to avoid this outcome. So I'm telling you of a future that will come if you do not change your way of living. Even if you think about these words that are mentioned in Isaiah 63, we have Edom, we have Basra, we have the day of vengeance. And you can go back to Isaiah 34, 5 through 8, and you're going to see each of those things mentioned there. I mean, it's not a very good idea if you're trying to do a sneak attack that you send the message, someone's coming, and then you send it again, unless you want what? Unless you want them to avoid the very thing that is coming. And I think that we need to be willing to ask ourselves, why do we have such a different view of judgment than what the people in the Old Testament do? Things have certainly changed. I think if I were preaching in Isaiah's day, I wouldn't need to expend any energy on the question of judgment. The, the question that would bother people is like, why is God so merciful? It kind of frustrates me. 
In fact, one of the things that you'll find, John Mark Comer says this, he says, the most frequent prayer that you'll find in the Old Testament is this, how long? And that how long prayer is like, God, when are you going to come and deal with all of these evil people? Even look at Psalm 6.3. Uh, in terms of its language structure, uh, people don't know what to do with it because it just, it's, it's like somebody's just mad. And they're not even thinking clearly. They say, my soul is struck with terror while you, O oh Lord, how long? I mean, when is God going to come and bring his justice? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? God, we want justice, and we want your judgment to come. And in case you think this is just an Old Testament thing, here's Revelation 6.10. And they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood in the inhabitants of this earth? I suspect one of the reasons we have such a negative emotional reaction to judgment is because most of us have not truly suffered at the hands of evil. I mean, maybe somebody made you pay 10% more than you're supposed to pay sometime. But if you've witnessed evil, you want God's judgment to come. That God's ultimate righteousness can be laid out for people. And the other thing we need to realize then is it is impossible to talk about judgment without simultaneously talking about God's long-suffering and God's patience. It's probably the biggest problem when people do teach judgment passages is they preach about a God who just like, like that's his, what he wants for his birthday is to be able to do this, to walk through and tread people down. But is that the message we're supposed to get of God coming out of these things? Israel, when she remembers God's judgment, often is shocked at how much patience God has shown with his people. Again, as we read earlier, here's Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because all that the Lord has done for us, for the great favor to the house of Israel, that he has shown to them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. In other words, what we realize is nothing that would surprise them, they would say, I can understand why God would punish everyone. That makes sense to me. But the fact that God would show mercy to anyone, how do you even begin to explain that? It's an unusual and unexpected thing that God would even with his people have this graciousness. And so this is a recognition. The reason they continue to be in relationship has only to do with God's enduring graciousness. There's the story of a quiet and tender man who worked close enough to home that for 20 years he would go home and he would eat his lunch. After 20 years of going home and eating his lunch and his, his wife would get all ready, well, the kids are back visiting and they're sitting around the table and dad gets a little flustered and dad says, I can't believe we're eating on little plates. Why can't we get big plates? And the one daughter is shocked because she's like, I've never seen dad angry before and she's shocked that she's angry. And the other daughter is shocked because she said, for 20 years, dad's been eating off of these plates and it took him this long to bring it up. So for one, it was a sign of anger and for another, it was a sign of long suffering. And what Israel does when she looks at God's long suffering is like, God, how can you endure this for so long? How can you put up with this for so long? And it shows as Exodus 34, 6 says, God is slow to anger. That's what God says to the people. I held out my hands all day long. 
to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Wherever we end up on this great and ultimate day, we need to remember that every day God is saying, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And I'm telling you about what is coming, not because I want that to happen to you, because I want you to take the hand that I am extending to you every day of your life. See, on that final day, there will be two groups of people. If you look through this passage, the, the language most often to describe the one group is his servants, and the other group are his enemies. And what we find is that the year of the Lord's favor will come to his servants, but the day of vengeance of our God will come to his enemies. And I think we are to view this final day like the end of a war. See, at the end of a war, it's either a great day or a terrible day based on what? Whichever side you're on. And the Christian faith is about choosing which side we will be on, for whom we will chase after and pursue. Notice there are these two choices. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your body shall flourish like the grass, and it will be known that the hand of the Lord is with his servants, and his indignation is against his enemies. So the question becomes for us, do you want to be his servant, or do you want to be his enemy? His choice is clear. He wants for all to be his servants. And he does not want that any should suffer punishment. And as Christians, I think it's important for us to make this connection as the one who comes and he says, I will pour out their lifeblood. Isaiah had told us just a few chapters earlier of this suffering servant who he poured out himself to death. There is a recognition in the message of the suffering servant who we recognize identified in the New Testament as Jesus Christ himself. The blood will be shed. But Christ has offered that his blood could be shed in our place. That no longer our lifeblood would be expected, but his own lifeblood would be poured out for our sake. And so the choice that we have to make is this. What do we do with Jesus Christ? Do we acknowledge him? Do we confess him? Do we make him the center of our lives? Or do we say, you know what? I'm okay. I'm fine. I've got this. I will do it myself. And that decision determines whether one will be considered the servant of God or the enemy of God. And what God wants, and I hope God can get it today, is for people to say, I choose you. I will respond to the gift of your son so that I can be considered one of your servants. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace, the peace that he offers to those who are his servants. And as we go from here, we remember that we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond this morning in any way, uh, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. Just invite you to come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.